Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, we're going to devote the entire hour to perhaps one of the world's leading authorities on the environment, and that's Lester Brown. And he is coming out with a new book, a rather upsetting book, but a book that really summarizes where we are with regards to the planet Earth. And that book is called World on the Edge. That's right, are we really on the edge of perhaps environmental collapse? Well, when you look at the Earth today, you realize that we are in pretty bad shape. If you compare the Earth to a person in a hospital, that person would be on life support. He would be in emergency care. Look at the state of the Earth right now. For example, the polar ice caps have thinned by 50% just in the last 50 years. An area the size of the United States has melted just recently in the North Polar region. Not to mention the fact that every glacier on the planet Earth, every major glacier is receding because of rising temperatures. Sea levels continue to rise. And again, the energy of hurricanes comes from warm water. And as the Caribbean and the West Atlantic heat up, it means that more and more hurricanes are going to have greater and greater energy for the future. Well, what do we do about all this? That's where Lester Brown comes in, because not only does he talk about the world on the edge, he also talks about a positive program a positive program that can energize people because we're talking about concrete actions that we can take to reverse the situation today. So, if the Earth today is like a patient on life support, then the question is, how do we make the patient better again so that person can be up on his or her feet once again? And so again, our special guest today for the entire hour is Lester Brown, one of the world's leading environmentalists, a founder of the World Watch Institute and also the Earth Policy Institute. Mr. Brown, you're one of the world's most prominent distinguished environmentalists, but when you were a youth, when you were a child, what was it that set you off on this long journey to, to save the environment? Well, um, though I grew up on a small farm in, uh, in southern New Jersey, um, Probably some of the things I was reading early on had an influence. Uh, I remember I was about uh, 10 years old reading Swiss Family Robinson, for example, which is probably the book that, that has had more influence than any other. And then later on in high school, uh, reading some of Richard Halliburton's books, um, the Book of Marvels and things. And um, he's a forgotten author now, but for for my generation, he was, uh, um, he was very interesting. And then... Um, Beyond that, after I graduated from Rutgers with a, an agricultural science degree, um, I had a chance to spend half a year living in Indian villages under the International Farm Youth Exchange Program. And, and so that experience and, and, uh, and the exposure to, to population pressure and food issues in, in India at that time, I think, had a, uh, had a long-term effect on, on my thinking and, and my, my career. Okay, well, now let's talk about something that's rarely talked about, and that is social collapse. 
what happens when we face a, quote, perfect storm of food shortages and water scarcity and costly oil? Uh, John Bennington of the United Kingdom, chief science advisor, talked about a perfect storm by 2030. And then Jonathan Porritt, uh, former chair of the UK Sustainable Development Commission, talked about, well, maybe it could be as close as 2020. So what are your thoughts about something that's very rarely talked about, and that is complete total collapse? When might it happen? What could trigger it? Well, if, um, if I were to pick the, um, what I think is the weak link in our global civilization, it would be the food supply. And it, it took me some time to, to uh, reach that conclusion because I had assumed for a long time that, that for our modern, technolo- for our modern uh, advanced technology civilization, food would not be um, an issue for us. But I now think not only that food um, is or could be the weak link, I think it is the weak link. And I think we're now beginning to, uh, to see that. And to just give you a, um, a quick um, uh, extension of John Beddington and Jonathan Parrott's thinking, um, John Beddington 2030, Jonathan Parrott 2020, I think it could come at any time. And to, to illustrate that, I, I, would, I would simply go back to the, the heat wave in uh, western Russia this past summer um, when um, the average temperature in Moscow for the month of July was 14 degrees Fahrenheit above the norm. I mean, if someone had had had, had mentioned that as a possibility, you know, at this time last year, I would have said, you know, I'm I'm not a climate denier, but 14 degrees is really is really sort of beyond that's the huge. pale. And um, um, but that's exactly what happened. Now um, it cost the Russians 40 percent of their 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 grain crop this year. They've been hoping for about 100 million tons. And uh, because of the extreme heat and drought, they ended up with about 60 million tons. But the world was lucky in the sense that if that heat wave had been centered not in Moscow, but in Chicago, and if the United States had lost 40% of its 400 million ton uh, grain harvest, uh, we, would, we, the U.S. and the world, would have lost 160 million tons of grain. World grain stocks would then have dropped to the lowest level in history, the lowest level on record. And grain prices would have gone far beyond anything we've seen, even those in, in, in the last few years. Um, food prices would have begun climbing around the world. Grain exporting countries would have begun to restrict exports to try to keep their food prices at a manageable level. And then um, we probably would have seen oil companies, uh, sorry, oil exporting countries begin to try to barter oil for grain in order to ensure that they got the grain they needed. And then the rest of the world, scores of importing countries, many of them lower income ones, would have been scrambling for whatever was left. And we would have seen food riots and demonstrations on a scale we've not seen before because desperate people do desperate things. We would have seen uh, governments falling left and right uh, instead of watching smoke in, in, in Moscow and the doubling of the death rate in, in, in Moscow from respiratory and heat stresses, uh, we would have been watching um, on the news reports of falling governments in one country after another. And um, that, um, that would have led to a, 
a total loss of confidence in the world grain market as a source of supply. And that's a very dangerous uh, uh, sort of development because it creates a, um, a situation where it's every country for itself and no one worries about the, um, the larger picture anymore. Wow. Well, that's quite a scenario. So you're saying that <clears throat> something like food riots or food shortages could be the tipping point and trigger a possible social collapse, and that could happen unpredictably any time, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. What we have to remember is that we live in an integrated world economy, uh, one where um, a housing bubble bursting in one country, um, like the United States, can send shockwaves throughout the world economy and, and, and actually put it on, on the, uh, uh, the international financial system on, on the verge of collapse. I mean, it took a concerted international effort uh, to, to avoid that. Um, and, and that was just a housing bubble in one country. But what we're looking now at now is food bubbles in a number of countries. And these food bubbles are being created by over-pumping aquifers and by over-plowing land that's eroding and, and, and the soil's blowing away and these dust bowls forming in northern uh, China and in Central Africa, for example. Um, so things could things can go uh, pretty fast, and I don't think we realize how close to the edge we are. Now, some people say that the key to the grain harvest is good weather, and of course, with global warming, the weather becomes more unpredictable with swings in the weather, but also water. Now, you mentioned water tables. So what does it mean if we have falling water tables? What does that mean for food harvests? Well, um, we have identified 18 countries where water tables are falling as a result of overpumping for irrigation. Those 18 countries contain um, over half the world's people, and they include the big three grain producers, China, India, and the United States. Now, some of these bubbles are based on the use of fossil water. Uh, the water for irrigation is being, being pumped from fossil aquifers. A fossil aquifer is an aquifer that does not recharge. Most of the world's aquifers are replenishable aquifers, and they recharge from rainfall. But one of the most dramatic bursting bubbles um, has been in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis have been self-sufficient in wheat production for more than 20 years. And then just a couple years ago, they announced that their aquifer um, that they'd been pumping from, which is a fossil aquifer, was largely depleted. They're going to phase out wheat production over the next eight years. In fact, their wheat, their wheat harvest has shrunk by uh, 70% here in just uh, two or three years, and in, in another year or so, they will be out of the wheat production business altogether. Uh, so this is a, a particularly dramatic bubble bursting uh, for two reasons. One, in Saudi Arabia, if you don't have irrigation water, you probably do not have um, agriculture. And they were totally dependent on a single fossil aquifer. Um, and uh, But in terms of size, the big bubbles, the, the, the uh, water-based food bubbles are in India and China. The World Bank data indicate that 175 million 
people in India are being fed with grains produced with overpumping, which by definition is a short-term phenomenon. In China, the comparable number we estimate is 130 million Chinese being fed with grain produced um, by overpumping. And when you begin putting these numbers together and you realize that sooner or later these bubbles are going to burst, um, then you realize uh, that um, expanding the world grain harvest is not going to be as easy um, as it was up until recently. Um, we, we see in, in the uh, Arab Middle East, for example, not only Saudi Arabia, uh, but also we see declining grain harvests in uh, Syria and in Iraq, and we see in Yemen um, uh, a coming um, uh, uh, a coming uh, massive reduction in irrigation because they're pumping their aquifers dry um, also. Um, and this is the first geographic region, the Arab Middle East, the more populous countries being Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. This is the first region where we're seeing an actual decline in grain production because of water shortages. Um, and, and some people think there could be water wars and that water could be just as precious as oil in some areas. Uh, what are your thoughts? The, uh, the idea that there will be, uh, could be water wars is one that's been around for some time. Up until now, the competition for water has actually taken place in the world grain market. And the reason for that is that if you have a, a huge water deficit, the easiest way to import water is in the form of grain. So when you import one ton of grain, you're actually importing a 1,000 tons of water. So up until now, the competition for water has been in the world grain market. To the extent there is a world water market, it, it is the grain market. This is how um, water, countries with water surpluses export their water in the form of grain, and countries with water deficits import water in the form of grain. Now, also in your book, you mention eroding soils and expanding deserts. Here in the Northeast uh, and in, also in the Midwest, people complained about snowstorms. But isn't it, isn't it true that in other parts of the world, like in China, they have droughts? So what about eroding soils and expanding deserts? Um, droughts, droughts certainly contribute to um, the, uh, the, uh, especially the wind erosion and the dust storms that we see, the dust bowls that we see forming now in northern and western China and western Mongolia. I mean, every year about this time in the, in the early February or so, the dust storms start coming out of that region and moving eastward, and they, they, they blanket cities like, like Beijing with, uh, with dust. I mean, there, there are days at this time of the year when you, uh, when you have to drive with your lights on during the daytime because there's so much dust in the air and visibility is so reduced. And this dust goes all the way to Korea and, and, and Japan, and occasionally some of it, in one of those dust storms... Uh, um, will remain intact all the way across the Pacific, and we'll, we'll see dust fall um, in the, the, the western United States, for example. But every one of those dust storms, and there are a number of them each year, carries away millions of tons of topsoil. So in northwestern China, we've seen 
I think it's 23,000 villages either totally abandoned or partly uh, depopulated because um, farmers are losing cropland as the sand dunes begin um, uh, encroaching on their land. And this this dust bowl um, in, in northern China and western Mongolia is being caused by a combination of overplowing and overgrazing. Um, but it's getting bigger every year. And the, the, the Chinese have not been able to stop the expansion of their uh, deserts. And then we have Central Africa with a huge dust bowl developing, centered uh, more around Chad than any other country, but, but with wind uh, picking up dust in, in all the Sahelian-zone countries um, as part of that uh, huge uh, dust bowl. Now, let's talk also about the big one, and that is rising temperatures, climate change, melting ice. Some people say that because we had the snowstorm, there is no such thing as global warming. But what are your thoughts? Well, the, um, um, the most visible answer to that uh, question um, about the snowstorms and so forth is to look at the, um, 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 the jet stream and its behavior in the Western Hemisphere um, in uh, both in, in recent days but over the last couple of years because um, the, the, the jet stream, which is normally a fairly clearly defined circle of air moving um, um, eastward in the uh, Northern Hemisphere and across the temperate zone countries, um, has actually in, in some um, uh, uh, at some points in the, in the last few weeks, has broken up entirely. And some parts of it are flowing north, some are flowing south. Um, and it is, it is doing two things. It is pulling cold air down in some parts of the area. So we have snowstorms in, the, in, in Arkansas and Texas and, and Georgia. And, uh, um, and at the same time, in northern Canada and Greenland, we have unusually mild temperatures because warm air is being pulled up. So it's um, if, if you look at this, and there's actually a, um, a, a, a video of several minutes that compresses some days of the jet stream into um, uh, um, an easily viewed period, and it's, it's unbelievable to see how it, it comes apart. Um, in the Western Hemisphere, and that apparently is because of unusually high water temperatures in the in the uh, uh, Eastern Pacific uh, that lead to this uh, breakup. But it's it, it leads to a very chaotic uh, situation. And melting ice uh, does that mean we're going to see some of our great cities gradually go underwater? Let me let me come back to the uh, the climate question. Mm -hmm. I was just talking about the um, the jet jet stream in particular, but the, the, the basic point with climate change is that agriculture, as it exists in the world today, has evolved during, the, during an 11,000-year period of rather remarkable climate stability. I mean, there have been a few blips here and there um, in, in temperature, but basically um, climate has changed very little during this period. Now, as climate begins to change, then agriculture will increasingly be out of sync with the evolving climate system. I remember back in the, the last half of the last century when I, I spent some time in the Department of Agriculture, and um, we would see weather events 
that would uh, tighten food supplies, for example, a monsoon failure in India or drought in Russia or a heat wave in the um, U.S. Uh, Midwest. And we did, um, one of the things we, uh, we uh, did then was simply to return idled cropland. We would calculate how much idled cropland we needed to bring back into production to to reestablish a balance in world grain supply and demand. So these were very temporary sorts of grain price searches. The, um, the other thing is that back then we knew that, that weather would go back to normal. But today there is no norm to go back to because the, the, the Earth's climate is now in a constant state of flux and change and much of which we can't easily predict. Um, so this growing uh, uh, mismatch between the climate system and the agricultural system is going to be costly to us. And as the weather starts to get warmer, what is the threat of melting ice? There are two sort of major threats here. One is... Um, melting ice sheets like the Greenland ice sheet or the uh, West Antarctic uh, ice sheet. Um, and what we're seeing now, and this is particularly clear with with Greenland, is that, the one, the ice is melting. Two, it is melting at an accelerating rate. It seems like every time we measured, it's melting faster than it was before. Um, and if the Greenland ice sheet were to melt entirely, it would raise sea level 23 feet or 7 meters, but um, even a 3-foot rise in sea level, and incidentally, the, the more recent projections show sea level rising by up to 6 feet during this century, but even a 3-foot rise in sea level would inundate half the rice land in Bangladesh. The World Bank has a very good map uh, showing that. Um, um, a 3-foot rise in sea level would... Um, inundate a good part of the Mekong Delta, which produces half the rice in Vietnam, which is the world's number two rice export. And there are, I think, another 19 or so rice-growing river deltas in Asia, um, which would be affected by just a three-foot rise in sea level. Now, what's so interesting about this, Micho, um, uh, is, is that the idea that ice melting on a large island in the far north Atlantic can shrink the rice harvest in Asia, where half the world's people live, is not um, is, is not obviously intuitive. I mean, when you think about it, you know, it becomes very clear. But um, most people don't have the uh, the time and luxury to think about all these interrelationships and what they what they translate into. The, the, the other form of ice melting, of course, is, is, is mountain glaciers. And uh, uh, this is also of uh, overwhelming importance in, in Asia because it is the, the ice melt from the glaciers in the Himalayas and on the Tibetan Plateau that sustains the, um, uh, the flow of the major rivers in Asia during the dry season. This includes the Indus, the Ganges, the Mekong, the Yangtze, the Yellow River, and so forth. And so this ice melt 
uh, during the dry season sustains not only the flow of those rivers, but the irrigation systems dependent on those rivers. So we're looking here at a potentially huge uh, disruption in, um, in, in, in both rice and wheat production in, uh, in countries like India and China. And one of the examples I use for China is that um, if, for this and other reasons, um, uh, China comes into the world market for large quantities of grain, as it is probably about to do, um, it will come to the United States because we are far and away the world's largest grain exporter. For American consumers, this is a nightmare scenario because what we're looking at is American consumers competing with 1.4 billion Chinese consumers with rapidly rising incomes for our grain harvest, thus driving up our food prices. Now, historically, when faced with a situation like this, as we were in the in the, in the mid-'70s, we restricted exports. We actually banned exports of soybeans to Japan because our soybean prices were rising so fast. The, the problem today is that China is our banker, and, and, and therefore uh, it's going to be very difficult for us to say to the Chinese, you know, get lost or, you know, we're going to restrict the, the amount of grain you can, you can import. Um, every month, when the Treasury Department um, holds its auctions of, of securities, of Treasury securities, to, to cover our fiscal deficit, China's been one of the biggest buyers there. They now hold $900 billion of um, U.S. Treasury securities. So, like it or not, you and I and 310 million other Americans are, are going to be sharing our grain harvest with the Chinese within the next few years. Okay, now let's talk about the consequences. We talked about the foundational structural problems that could set off the nightmare of a social collapse, and now let's talk about the consequences of all this. First of all, environmental refugees. We're accustomed to seeing pictures of refugees fleeing wars and famines. Here you're talking about environmental refugees. Could you elaborate? Environmental refugees include um, um, several um, include refugees that are um, uh, caused or, or displaced by a number of environmental trends. One is simply expanding deserts. Um, I, I mentioned the 23,000 villages in, in northwestern China that have either been totally abandoned or partly um, uh, abandoned because the farmers are losing their their cropland to the the sand dunes. Um, so that's um, that's one thing. Another thing is the loss of water supply. When aquifers are depleted in some areas, then people are forced to move elsewhere to um, um, to um, to wherever they can find uh, water. Um, so we have expanding deserts. We have falling water tables, and we have ice melting all contributing to um, uh, refugees, uh, to a flow of environmental refugees in the future that could number in the hundreds of millions. I mean, we could see people being forced to move around the planet, many of them across national boundaries, on a scale that we've not even imagined uh, before.
Well, that concludes the first part of our interview with Lester Brown, author of a disturbing new book called World on the Edge, How to Prevent Environmental and Economic Collapse. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Once again, for a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at one 800 735-0230. Well, now let's continue with exploration as we continue the interview with Lester Brown talking about a tipping point for social and world collapse. Welcome back to Exploration. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And we're very privileged to have with us today one of the world's leading environmentalists for the entire hour. If you were to make a short list of the people that have made a difference with regards to the environment, a short list of the world's leading authorities on the environment, Lester Brown would probably top that list. This is a man who founded the Worldwide Institute, one of the world's leading think tanks. And when you get your environmental news and your statistics and your data, you may wonder, where does most of that information come from? And the Worldwide Institute has become one of the world's leading clearinghouses for that information. Many people think of Lester Brown as the Paul Revere of the environmental movement. Someone who's been working for the environment for decades. Someone who has alerted us to the real dangers facing the planet. And once again, he has a new book out, World on the Edge. And so we're going to continue our discussion with Lester Brown, founder of the World Watch Institute and the Earth Policy Institute, one of the world's leading environmentalists. Now, Mr. Brown, where we last left off, we were talking about global climate change. What happens when climate change causes sea levels to rise? What's going to be the impact of that? Um, for example, uh, rising sea level. Um, many of the world's largest cities are, are basically coastal cities, not that far above sea level. Shanghai, uh, New York, um, um, London, Cairo, Washington, D.C., Miami. I mean, there are scores of countries um, that are just very close to, uh, to sea level. And what that would translate into in a country like the United States, if we had a rise in sea level, just even a few feet, um, we would see the emergence of two real estate markets. One would be the coastal real estate market that would include a good part of Florida, uh, parts of the East Coast, southern New Jersey, um, uh, uh, New York City, um, the Cape Cod area of Massachusetts, for example, um, we would see real estate prices in these markets falling. 
at the same time, we'd see real estate prices in the rest of the country rising as people retreated from rising seas and had to look for new housing elsewhere. And again, it's not it's not something we normally think about, but it's something that could be um, could be affecting real estate markets, uh, you know, in the not too distant future as it be- as it becomes clear that sea level is rising and is going to be rising at an accelerating rate. I mean, it's interesting now that various planning bodies um, in places like California, New York, uh, uh, in in the state of Florida. Uh, um, Southern Louisiana, um, uh, the Netherlands, in in, in Europe, um, the UK, um, the planning bodies here um, who are working on things in coastal regions um, are actually making certain assumptions about what they think sea level rise will be, and integrating those into their um, into their their planning, uh, whether it's uh, uh, residential, industrial development, or transport systems, or whatever. Um, so this is, we're looking at a world uh, with stresses that we've never had to face since uh, since civilization first emerged 6,000 years ago. And do you foresee a time when we're going to have to have dikes around Manhattan and levees and different kinds of mechanical devices to save our cities from going underwater? Well, we either have to think of doing that, which can be very costly, I think in the Netherlands, the, uh, um, the the efforts to maintain their dikes and everything, and they have a very sophisticated, complex system. I think the budget for that is comparable to their to their defense budget. Um, I mean, it is a defense budget in a sense, um, uh, but it's it's a very substantial expenditure. And and while New York might be able to afford to build some of those dikes around the city, um, uh, there are many places in the world. Uh, that cannot afford to uh, to do that. I, I think of Bangladesh, and one reason that India has built a wall uh, between India and Bangladesh um, is to is to anticipate and prevent that potential movement in in one of the countries that's that's among the most vulnerable to to rising sea levels. Now, the Global Business Network, an organization that we interviewed on exploration, was commissioned by the Pentagon several years ago to look at a worst-case scenario uh, when, when nuclear weapons might be used to prevent environmental refugees from overwhelming borders. And that report singled out uh, the border between Bangladesh and its neighboring countries when hundreds of millions of people could be pouring over the border and nations overwhelmed by this may use nuclear weapons. Uh, that's pretty drastic, right? It is. Um, what What is difficult for us now to to sort of evaluate is how desperate people and desperate governments will behave when stresses begin to reach an unmanageable level. Um, and, I mean, we, we don't know because we haven't been here before. We've not we've not had environmental trends before, like expanding deserts and and thawing uh, water tables and um, uh, rising sea level um, to drive the flow of refugees uh, uh, on the scale that we're now that we're now looking at. Okay. Also, in your book, you talk about failing states. 
Uh, these are things that we never really talked about uh, a generation ago during the Cold War. But now more and more we're encountering failed states. And is the situation going to get worse? Well, as, as I point out in, uh, in World on the Edge, um, perhaps the most basic indicator um, that will tell us more about our future than any other is what happens to the number of failing states. And if we look back over the last five or six years now, we see that each year the number of failing states is increasing. And it raises a disturbing question, which is, how many failing states before we have a failing global civilization? And the answer is, we don't know. We haven't been here before. Even the concept of failing states has entered our vocabulary only, um, you know, a, a, a decade or, or, or so ago. It's, it's, a new, it's a new idea because throughout most of um, my working career, um, beginning back in the, in the 50s, um, we were looking at a world where we were building new nation states. Um, you know, the whole decolonization period was characterized by a great increase in the number of states. And then more recently, the breakup of the, of the Soviet Union created a number of um, independent uh, states. Um, so this, um, this is, a, is a, a difficult thing for us to deal with. I mean, if you were to just sort of step back and, and, and sort of think about um, the failure of, of a, a global civilization, the first thing you would look for would be the failure of individual nation states. And when they begin to fail, they create all sorts of problems for the world. I mean, Haiti has become a, a, you know, an ecological basket case. Now heavily dependent on, on the World Food Program lifeline and aid programs to sustain it as a country. Even the UN peacekeeping force there um, has taken the place or... or um, or, or helps the local police to maintain um, uh, stability and, 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 and at least some degree of personal uh, security. Then we have a country like Pakistan, which is, uh, which is a, um, the most populous failing state, but it's also a failing state with nuclear weapons, and that becomes a, a, a very high-risk uh, situation. Then we have countries like Somalia, well, I shouldn't say country. Somalia is a place on the map, but it's not a country in any any um, <clears throat> meaningful sense of the word. Um, um, with people trying to make a, a living by piracy and creating headaches for um, many countries around the world who either depend on imported oil coming out of the Persian Gulf through the Indian Ocean or through the Suez Canal. Um, much of the world's traffic goes through that uh, that region where the Somali pirates operate. And the amazing thing is there are 17 countries now with naval units in that region to, to deal with the, the problem of piracy. But it keeps getting worse and worse. I mean, uh, I was reading an article in The Economist a year ago, and it was summing up uh, 2009 and, and, and the earnings of the pirates and so forth. I was almost like a corporate business report, um, you know, pointing out how many ships they'd taken, what the average 
uh, return per ship was and, uh, and and what the total earnings were and that sort of thing. Um, and it's the kind of problem that's very difficult to deal with. And so um, we're, we're not dealing with it effectively. We're trying, but we haven't had much success. And when we have a failing state, <clears throat> we also have a failing economy, right? No question. Um, and, and in the case of Somalia or Haiti, you have a lot of hungry people. Um, you have um, countries that are dependent on um, the UN World Food Program for for the food lifeline. I mean, it really does uh, um, help sustain them. They can't feed themselves. And uh, uh, we're seeing there's some, I think, some 35 countries now that uh, are getting food aid from the UN World Food Program. Um, and um, roughly half of those countries are on a more or less permanent um, uh, food uh, lifeline. And I guess the world didn't really pay attention to these failed states until they became uh, hotbeds of piracy and terrorism, right? Yeah, piracy, terrorism, and drugs. Afghanistan is now the world's, you know, totally dominates the world uh, um, heroin market, for example. Um, so we have... Um, we have some some real challenges now um, in in dealing with um, uh, this. I, I I mentioned that the number of failing states is a key indicator. The the three indicators that I look at um, are um, you know to give us a sense of where the world is headed and what our future will be like. The first one is grain prices. That's an economic indicator. And as the price of grain goes up, things get more and more dicey in the world. The second indicator is the number of hungry people in the world. That number was declining during the closing decades of the last century. But then at the turn of the century, it turned up. And it, it had gotten down to about 825 million. It's now up around a billion. And looks like it's going to continue um, climbing. And the third indicator is the political indicator, which is the number of failing states in the world. So it's grain prices, the number of hungry people, and failing states that I think are three of the key indicators that will tell us where where we're headed in the future. Okay. Now, we've talked about the deteriorating foundation of the world ecology and economy. We talked about some of the political consequences. And now let's talk about Plan B. That is, what are we going to do about it, given that Plan A means to do nothing? Now, one part of Plan B is an energy-efficient global economy. So how do we enforce energy efficiency? I think we let the market do it, uh, but we have to get the market to tell the truth. And we need to uh, both create a more efficient energy economy, much more efficient, and we have great technologies now for doing that. We also need to, to, to restructure it in terms of the sources of energy, that is, replacing coal and oil and natural gas with wind and solar and geothermal. And the, the most efficient way to do that is simply to restructure the tax system, that is, lower income taxes, and offset that with a rise in the carbon tax. And, and this would, if we were to do this over a period of, say, 10 years, um, and we wouldn't pay any more taxes, we'd pay exactly the same. Uh, we would just tax labor less and, and, and carbon more. Um, that would lead to a very rapid uh, shift from fossil fuels to renewable sources of energy. Now, some people say that when you buy something, it doesn't really reflect the true cost of it 
because you have waste disposal and you have the impact on the environment and any number of lawsuits uh, arising from it. And so some people say that a carbon tax would actually make objects reflect the true cost. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, that's, that, that's, precisely, that, that's precisely the reason for restructuring the tax system is because um, the market economy, which a century ago um, was, was, was fairly honest, um, and it reflected, prices reflected real costs. But today, uh, with fossil fuels, for example, um, in the United States, we pay, say, $3 for a gallon of gasoline. But that includes the cost of pumping and, and getting the oil to a refinery and making the gasoline and getting that to the local service station. It does not include the cost of climate change. Um, it doesn't include the cost of treating um, respiratory illnesses from breathing polluted air. It doesn't include the cost of the U.S. military establishment in the Middle East to protect access to oil. Um, so when you put all these costs in, the cost of gasoline, it turns out the, the, the real price is not $3. It's, it's more than $12. And, and yet we go around thinking gasoline is cheap. Well, in the, at, at, at the pump it is cheap, but in terms of its cost to society and including the next generation will have to deal with climate change and hundreds of millions of climate refugees and all the things that come with climate change, um, then we're in, uh, um, we're in real trouble. Okay, and also for a positive program, you mentioned wind, solar, geothermal. So let's take them one at a time. First of all, wind power, which is going rapidly in Europe. Some people think that eventually it'll hit a ceiling because how many cities can harness wind? But what are your thoughts about the future of wind power? Um, wind is an extraordinarily abundant uh, resource, and that's particularly true in the large economies like the United States and China. It's also true in, in Europe. There's um, enough wind energy in the North Sea to, to uh, uh, more than, than, than uh, provide all the electricity Europe uh, uh, can uh, consume. In the U.S., we have three states, North Dakota, Kansas, and Texas, that can provide uh, far more electricity, indeed could satisfy total energy needs uh, for this country and, and, and have a lot left over. Um, the most recent study in China indicates that China could increase its current electricity consumption from wind alone by 16-fold. Um, so China has far more wind than it could ever possibly uh, use to generate electricity. Um, so the, the, the idea here is to, is to, is to restructure um, uh, prices, restructure um, the market to get it to tell the truth. And if we do that, we'll see enormous growth in, in wind energy, even beyond the 30% a year or so that we, uh, we now have. And wind parks are sprouting up around the world, right? China is going to go heavily into wind, and even in the United States, uh, right? Oh, yes. We have uh, now over 40,000 megawatts of generating capacity in both the United States and China. But China is growing much, uh, much faster. They they have a, uh, a program to develop, and this is a government-organized program, to develop seven wind mega-complexes, each of which will have more than 10,000 megawatts of generating capacity. Um, and, and, and some of them will be up close to 
uh, to 20 or more. Um, but altogether, when these wind mega complexes are, are finished, they will generate 130,000. They will have 130,000 megawatts of generating capacity. That's equal to building another coal-fired power plant every week for the next two and a half years in China. That is to say, it's 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 not it's not trivial. It's it, it, it's really quite large. And and this is only this special program. There are hundreds of other wind farms going up in China that that are independent of these wind mega complexes. So we're seeing some exciting progress now in in various parts of the world, including in uh, in China. Now, what about solar power? People talk about it. People have been talking about it for a long time. Prices are still high, but Prices are dropping. What about the future of solar? There are two um, forms of solar energy that um, are being widely uh, uh, harnessed now. One is using solar cells, photovoltaics, that um, silicon wafers basically convert sunlight directly into electricity. Um, and, and the second is um, solar thermal power plants where um, a, a collection of mirrors is focuses sunlight on a huge container of water or some liquid and, and boils it and, and uses it to run uh, um, electrical generators. Uh, um, we, we use the steam in the same way that you would from a coal plant or a gas plant or a nuclear power plant. Um, so that's the, um, uh, those are the two technologies, and we're now seeing for the first time a number that must be probably a dozen uh, huge wind complexes uh, measured in the hundreds of, of megawatts that is uh, comparable to a coal-fired power plant. Um, there, there's one solar complex developing in California with about 1,000 megawatts. I mean, um, at full capacity, that's equal to a nuclear power plant, for example. Um, so we have um, a dozen of these large um, utility-scale projects underway in the U.S. Southwest and, and mostly in California and Arizona. Um, and then we have um, rooftop um, solar collectors for heating water. Um, and that's a form of, of, of solar thermal energy. China's the world leader here with probably 40 million homes now with rooftop solar water heaters. That's 120 million people getting their hot water from, uh, from rooftop uh, solar water heaters. Um, and we have in Europe a huge uh, uh, effort led by a dozen corporations, including Munich Ray, Deutsche Bank, Siemens, uh, several others, to develop the solar resources in North Africa and to integrate them into a grid with, um, with Europe. So there will be a European North African grid that will harness both simultaneously the wind resources of the North Sea and the solar resources of North Africa to satisfy the electricity needs throughout the area. And some people are saying that let's put uh, solar parks throughout the desert. You mentioned North Africa, the Sahara. What about the prospects of using large open desert areas to generate solar energy? Well, one of the uh, great things about deserts is they're ideal for um, uh, collecting uh, solar energy and converting it into electricity. The, uh, the Algerians, who are already building uh, solar thermal power plants to uh, generate electricity and are planning to, uh, to ship to, uh, to Europe, point out that in their desert, they have enough harnessable solar energy to power the world economy. 
not the Algerian economy or the European economy, but the world economy. And um, this this is a point that's uh, made frequently in the energy literature when it's noted that the solar energy striking the Earth in one hour contains enough energy to run the world economy for one year. And also, what about geothermal power? Geothermal power is um, um, is an, also an extraordinarily abundant uh, source of energy. It is most easily accessible in, in areas um, with um, uh, volcanoes, for example, or um, uh, areas like the, uh, the western United States. Um, a country like Iceland um, has... Um, uh, is now heating 90% of its uh, homes with geothermal energy. Um, it is, all, I think, all of its electricity now comes either from hydro, from melting ice, or from um, geothermal power plants. Um, Indonesia, with 130 active volcanoes, could get all of its electricity from geothermal power plants. Uh, Japan is another country with, you know, has um, tens of thousands of hot baths. And those hot baths are, are uh, the heat comes from geothermal sources. Um, so we know that that, that that energy is close to the surface in Japan. The same is true of Turkey, um, eastern China, uh, the Philippines. So there are, there are many countries that can uh, can tap geothermal energy for uh, to to meet their electricity needs. And we see uh, enormous growth in uh, in all three renewable sources: wind solar, and geothermal um, in the years immediately ahead. Now, let me ask you about a big one now, and that is population. Mm -hmm. Some people say that even if we do have a new green revolution and produce more food and produce more energy, that we're in a rat race, a rat race with the population. The rate of population growth is slowing down, but in other areas it's still exploding. So what are your thoughts about population and poverty? Well, the the stabilization of population and the eradication of poverty go uh, go hand in hand. Um, once you um, begin accelerating the shift to smaller families, then uh, poverty begins to disappear. And when you begin to eradicate poverty, you accelerate the shift to smaller families. So we know what, what works and what we have to do. The exciting thing here is that there are, according to the latest survey, 215 million women in the world who want to limit their family size but do not have access to family planning services. They don't have to be convinced about anything. They know what they want to do. They want to have um, fewer children, and they want to space them more so they don't have one right after the other um, and, and, and thus have healthier children. Um, filling that family planning gap is the, the takes just a... A, a, a very small um, amount of resources. I mean, an amount so small it would get lost in the rounding of our of our national military budget, for example. So it's a gap we cannot afford to have continuing because those 215 million women and their families, assuming they have, um, say, three children each, represent a billion people, and they actually represent... Um, most of the poorest billion people in the world. 
And some people say that, well, as you mentioned, that as populations become more prosperous, they have fewer children, puts less burden on the world economy. But other areas are still expanding and uh, still have tremendous amounts of poverty. So what are your thoughts about whether or not you're optimistic or pessimistic about expanding populations and more mouths to feed, and that means more stress on the environment and stress on food supplies? Someone uh, said recently it's, it's too late to be pessimistic, and um, I, I, I think there may, may, may be some merit in that. It's now uh, not a question of whether we're optimistic or pessimistic. It's, it's recognizing what we need to do if we want to turn things around. And one of the things that is at the heart of this is our definition of security. We have inherited a definition of security from the last century that was dominated by two world wars and a cold war. So when you mention the term national security here in Washington, where I am, or indeed anywhere in the country, people think military. But if you were to sit down with a clean pad in front of you and ask the question, what are the principal threats to our future today? It would be climate change, population growth, um, falling water tables, rising food prices, an increase in the increasing number of failing states. These are the threats to our future now. It's not there's not some heavily armed superpower, um, you know, that that's threatening to uh, invade us or or threaten us in any any uh, important way. The threats to our future are climate change, population growth, water shortages, rising food prices, and failing states. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest was Lester Brown. The book, a very disturbing book, is called World on the Edge, How to Prevent Environmental and Economic Collapse. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Good day for exploration. This is Dr. Michio Kaku. <laughs> 